Hello and welcome to the Waters Wavelength Podcast. I am Tony Malakian, editor here at Waters Technology, and I am joined by Tony Amakanjoli. Did I get that uh, last name correct? You did. All right, good, good. Uh, Tony is the uh, founder and C- uh, CEO of HPR, formerly known as Hyannis Port Research. And Tony, thanks uh, for being on the show today. Thank you, Anthony. So we're going to have a discussion a little bit about Tony's career. We're going to talk a little bit um, about the space that HPR operates in and around um, FPGA technology and use cases, as well as a discussion about just some of the trends that are unfolding in the uh, cloud space and specifically how it relates to capital markets firms. So to start off with, the natural place to begin with is just tell us a little bit about your career and what led you to start uh, HPR. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, my career, I feel it really was a perfect set of events, maybe even accidents that led me to where I am today. Um, at a very young age, I loved engineering, couldn't get enough of it. Um, I uh, built my first microprocessor in my teens um, in high school. <laughs> yeah, I had my uh, um, teacher in electronics. I had shown him a digital clock I designed and from that point forward he said just go in the back of the room and experiment. Yeah. This is in high school you're saying? <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was an electronics program in Newton New North and um, he just let me work independently. So I had a real love and affinity for both hardware and software um, but also always wanted to be an entrepreneur. When I was 14 years old I can remember carving a company logo uh, name uh, with my buddies. I'm uh, yeah. just thinking someday there'll be a building with engineers in it and I'll be running it. So Was it uh, Hyannis Port Research? Was that the logo or is it, what was uh, the name back laugh. then? It was Amatron. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I just it's missed the te- Z. If I got the Z. It's you know? a good uh, technology company. I like it. funny? In the <laughs> 80s there was a lot of Trons. Sure, sure. Say, uh, yeah. So, and then, so you, I'm assuming you went to college for engineering or? I did. Um, it took a few gap years. Uh, and it, it, during that time, I'd already gone into engineering. I'd established myself as a, a hardware engineer. Yeah. But uh, decided that I did want to uh, go and get the um, formal education. So I landed at MIT. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a uh, great uh, experience. Um, grueling. I'm sure. Yeah. Very <laughs> grueling. Um, it also landed me. Uh, in, uh, and uh, connected me with some great friends and mentors. In particular, um, I was the first student in the MIT Venter, Venture Mentoring Service. Mm-hmm. So Alec Dingy, who's a very, very well-known, sort of the really founder of that, along with others. Uh, they they did some companies, for example, with Ray Stata, who's the founder of Analog yeah. Device. So um, I really had this healthy mix of entrepreneurship and um uh, of course, the electronics, both hardware and software. Yeah. So what ended up, so I'm assuming that you kind of bounced around a little bit, you know, in your career kind of building up experience before uh, HPR was created. Is that correct? Absolutely. Um, I did a startup first right out of school uh, called Gamma Graphics, and it was print-on-demand systems, which I guess the relevant point there is, that was the first time I saw a startup process from scratch all the way to funding yeah. and getting What revenue. year are we talking about here? Uh, that was the uh, early 90s. Okay. Um, and uh, that set the stage for the next lucky accident, which was I landed at a company called BBN, Bolt, Berenick, and Newman. Okay. Not well known, but I'll tell you, if you look them up online, uh, the who's who famous names that created the internet, it was done 
largely at BBN okay. uh, for the government. It was DARPA research, originally for the ARPANET, um, which was uh, the first real packet network. I worked in the building where the folks upstairs decided on, you know, look, they decided things like .com, .edu, that sounds good, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So TCP, IP, all the protocols that became the Internet as we know it today. Um, it was an elite place. They said they used to skim the cream at MIT every year, and it uh-huh. was very deep and research-driven. But when I landed at uh, BBN, I was also honing my skills as a commercial development manager. So I was as interested in the technology as I was in learning how to put teams together and drive products to market. And as luck would have it, uh, BBN was in a push where they wanted to take and commercialize their routers and switches, Uh which uh, they were basically building them for the military at the time. So I did a commercial contract that was a joint effort between BBN and NEC in Japan, and I built in 96 the first voice over IP device, which was very, very early on that. I led the project, it was successful, went on to build a core IP router called Super Router, um, and that, really set the stage again for me when we get to the HPR story a big component of it is know-how and building routers and switches. How long were you at BBN for? Uh, All in about three years I'd say yeah. And so I kind of gave you some background so was then next you decided all right I'm going to kind of go create my own thing here or what will happen then? Almost. um, I ended up landing at a startup, yet another startup, uh, called Infolibria. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a content delivery place, so a lot like um, what an Akamai does. How did, um, if you don't mind me backing up a little bit, just to maybe help uh, people that maybe have their own ideas, but of uh, starting a company and stuff. You decided to go to BBN, which were they, I would imagine they weren't that well known back then, is that fair enough to say? Or were they a big time company uh, back then? Obviously, what they were working on is very important, but were they a well-known company is what I'm saying. I it guess. was, no, I would say uh, they were known as an elite research institution, okay. and very, very elite, but... So you just jumped at the bit when they offered. Well, it was, I have to admit, it was luck because the internet during those sure. years, it wasn't quite as obvious <laughs> as it is yeah. now. So, you know, all stories are a combination of luck and, a, sure. and timing, along with hopefully some skill. Um, and then you go and leave this, you know, elite company. What kind of led you to go and try something new when you're at a place that's very successful, I, I would imagine? A little bit of push and a little bit of pull. Uh, I was doing well at BBN, but that was, uh, they were trying to grow out of their government sure. project uh, roots. And they were having... I would say some challenges with that. Meanwhile, uh, the dot com, the internet was starting to uh, build up some momentum, and uh, some friends reached out to me. And again, that startup Infolibria, um, it was a scratch startup. I was a very early employee. It wasn't mine, but yeah. um, it looked like a good play. So I, I jumped on there. And even that, although uh, they were one of those companies that was pre IPO on the launch pad, ready sure. to go when the dot com blowout happened yeah um i was sitting on stock options where i <laughs> probably would have retired back then but uh it, it it didn't work out but i learned so much because in fact got got a number of patents and content delivery and uh lear- learned a lot from that experience and yet again that plays into the hbr narrative because we are headed 
squarely in the cloud computing direction. And I started seeing the cloud, and I believe I, I saw it fairly early at that point. So uh, that was a, a good good experience as well. Well, take uh, the audience through it a little bit. You decide, so you started one right at the very beginning of your career. You did a start, you, you founded a company, you joined a startup later on. You decide, all right, I've learned my lessons. I've, I've seen what it is. What made you decide, all right, this is something I'm going to actually go and put it, go all in on this? Yeah, um, I think I understand the question. Let me answer it this way. If I've you had really... a couple beers. I, don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I want to say a good way, if you really watch the way my career worked out, it went from deliberate, a little less deliberate, deliberate, a little less deliberate. In, in other words, you would go after a startup where you're chasing some equity and a big outcome. Sure. And if that doesn't work out, you generally land at a stopover point while you figure out what you're going to do next. Yeah. So BBN, that was de facto a stopover. I was thinking about entrepreneurship but and stumbled into the best place I possibly could have. Infolibria, more thoughtful. I want to do a startup, but it didn't work out. Post-Infolibria, I did uh, do another startup. That's the cloud computing startup okay. that I did. And then after that, I went to Juniper Networks, which was another stopover, Yeah, uh, which was another very, very lucky stopover. Yeah, Juniper, well-known, obviously. And and then the next one after that was Tower Capital Research slash Line Brokerage, which then set the stage for HPR. So uh, if you think about what we do, there's networking and telecommunications. Sure. BBN covered that. Infolibria covered that. I mentioned uh, a stopover at Juniper Networks. They were doing networks and switches in a way never before conceived where they were building routers that you could run half a city with 20,000 subscribers. And those technologies are very critical to what HPR does. Um, And uh, then on to Lime Tower, which, of course, I learned about data delivery and trading gateways and all the stuff we needed uh, for for the HPR play. Uh, so really every accident, and pro- probably the most unlikely one, by the way, is a startup called Zatari, which was mine. I was the founder. I was the CEO. Zatari was a cloud computing company in 2000. Yeah. And if you read that business plan, um, it's like we had a newspaper from 2006, <laughs> uh, dead on the money. Um and what happened with the Zatari, we built a working prototype. Um, like cloud computing today, it let you amass resources in a very simple uh, way. But then if a client needed a certain service, say I need a web farm, we could drag and drop um, what that deployment looked like. And it magically, so yeah. to speak, happened on the equipment. That is cloud computing. So when I read the stories, after the fact of how Amazon almost accidentally stumbles into it. 04, I think, was the famous letter where Bezos, I might have that date wrong, but around then, he wrote a letter where he said, if you don't do an, if teams building technology don't create APIs between other teams, um, basically, there would be some tough (laughs) outcomes. Um, And it was two years later, they actually said, ah, cloud computing, this is the future. In fact, Satara, we didn't call it cloud, we called it grid and utility Mm -hmm. computing. But it was identically the same thing. So, you know, again, all the way up to uh, launching HPR, um, you know, it's just a very lucky series of some thoughtful to be an entrepreneur and sure. build companies, and some 
the luckiest set of stop stopovers one could hope for. Oh yeah, you know, and then we'll get into HBR. But looking back on that experience, obviously each experience was important. What would you go back and say? I wish I would have done this differently. This is certainly something that I, knowing now, this would have made life a lot easier. You know, back then. I have definitely made a number of uh, decisions where you wish you could have it all back. Everybody has. Everybody has. But I think looking back now, of course, knowing where cloud computing went, and this yeah. will sound bizarre, but uh, when I was leaving Juniper, my I had two classmates from MIT that went to Tower Capital Research as a comment, jump in the water is great. So I was leaving Juniper Networks to go to New York, but the investors from Zatari who had told me to shut it down and put the equipment on ice, a week before I left for New York, packed my family up and moved to New York, mm. uh, we had coffee and they said, we want you to reopen Zatari. We'll we'll support you. You won't. We'll, you'll never run out of cash again. Sure. We we'll get it. I said, you know what? I now there's where I knew the cloud was coming and it yeah. would be big, but I was thinking, ah, maybe it's going to take 10, 20 more years. So I'm just going to do this Wall Street thing. Gotcha. I don't think I would have done the Wall Street thing <laughs> if I had it over. I mean, hindsight's I, always twenty twenty. Uh, absolutely, I feel very confident Zatari would have been a um, a very successful company if it had just not uh, basically run out of money. So yeah. So walk uh, the listeners through HPR, and then we'll talk a little bit about some of the industry trends that you're seeing and where you guys fit into the space. But HPR, you you start this company. Where was kind of the the market gap that you saw, and you know how have you kind of grown out the the company since then? Sure. Um, at Lime slash Tower, I took technology all the way up to hardware, but I never did any hardware at Tower. So I knew whatever I was going to do next, I would bring, I I had prior skill in hardware, a lot of it. So I knew the next step was hardware. Um, I mean, you were an engineer at 14. So yeah. Yeah. And it it runs some programs. So um, initially, uh, six months before starting uh, Lime, uh, sorry, uh, HPR, I was out raising money to trade. I was okay. actually going to trade. I was going to be like a family a office kind stock. of thing. Uh, yeah, I was raised. Yeah, or more like almost similar to what uh, the HRTs and uh, towers did. Gotcha. You know, yeah, yeah raise some money um, and and build an algorithm, build the system. So everything I'm doing now, I would have applied it to one trading entity. There's another question. I look back and say. <laughs> We're, we're, we're going to be nine years old in a month. I don't know. It took a little longer. HPR was successful, but it uh, was, was a longer ride than I expected. Of course. Uh, so uh, then the flash crash happened, 010. And clearly, you could see the drumbeat that there was going to be a need for this equipment that sits between the trading entities and the exchanges where uh, you just could no longer trade unprotected without these uh, devices. And that's what HPR builds. It builds a, the first product, I should say, the go-to-market product was RiskBot, which is a pre-trade risk gateway. Mm-hmm. In essence, what that is, is you have a trading entity, maybe an elite hedge fund. They have systems stacked at the, in, in, let's take U.S. equities. They'll have systems stacked at NASDAQ, NYSE, uh, SIBO. Um, it's like a circuit breaker. You just cut the fiber cable between the exchange and sure. the trader. You put this box in the middle. You make it sound simple. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, 
so, um, uh, and it, it, it has another central system that collects all the data from those systems and it monitors the trading. And it does so very, very quickly, 360 nanoseconds, which is uh, light can go one foot per nanosecond. So it's the time it takes light to go about 300 feet. Mm-hmm. We do on, on the order of 48 risk checks. So applying my hardware capability, this seemed like a no brainer. I could see investment banks struggling. My co-founder, Tom Wilson, he was actually at UBS at the time, and they were in a world of hurt trying to maintain their franchise and keep high-volume traders on board, but their market access gateways were really insufficient to, uh, to, to keep up and allow them to facilitate con- connectivity for ultra-elite trading entities. So. Um, and, and they're one of many, many banks. In fact, I will tell you, markets always evolve more slowly than one thinks. And I can't believe it. Again, we'll be nine years old and uh, we're all but uncontested in this space. It did take us nine years to build up this mode of IP. We're global now. We're in 85 sure. markets. Um, and it took that period of time for a reason. It's been hard for others to get that done. So anyway, um, we were, uh, you know, saw that need, and then the Securities and Exchange Commission with Regulation 15C35, which outright mm-hmm. outlawed it, meant that if you were an HFT firm, you could sign off and say, well, I kind of do my trades in box. That put them at an advantage. So for the banks who wanted to maintain volume but be competitive, it was a really tough challenge. So mm-hmm. we ended up raising our first Series A round from UBS, uh, two and a quarter million, and uh, one happy point, we've never looked back. We've never raised another round uh, since, and we're strong, plenty of cash on the balance sheet, so we were able to get to market quickly, get customer revenue very quickly. It was very exciting. So that was the go-to-market product. Um, I can say the first three years, it seemed like it went by in a flash. Yeah. But as we began to begin mo- build momentum, we started realizing that um, while being the best at that, ultra low latency point, if you will, for market access, that was a good problem to solve. Then we also though realized that banks in general were having difficulty with their infrastructure and systems. Um, and, and we were concerned that that was too narrow a market that will have the top 12 elite trading entities, yeah. but that's not a sustainable growth model. So what HBR has done since is built a whole product line for capital markets infrastructure, particularly right now uh, along the market access gateway space. So in other words, there's the ultra low latency gateways. Mm -hmm. We also build um, lower price point, higher functionality software boxes. So it's sort of like your granddad's fixed gateway, uh, or if you want to go fixed to native to get to the exchange. What this has allowed us to do is bring, bring in deals where, for example, we're doing a deal with a global investment bank now where every fiber to every market globally will be HPR equipment. Mm-hmm. And they needed the spectrum of product offerings, uh, RiskBot, SoftBot, and OmniBot, um, uh, to cover the uh, variety of uh, sure. connectivity. This allowed them to take um, a mess, in essence, uh, in regions. Uh, you know, Each region had different teams building equipment, different latency profiles, et cetera. It allowed them to have a much more uh, unified capability. So we've grown very quickly into uh, a much wider offering. Let me ask you this then. 
those first three years, you only need to go through one round of funding, I guess, as opposed to many firms that go through the A, B, C, you know, seed funding and all that. What was the lessons learned there? What, you know, because you, you said that you thought it was going to be a little bit quicker than it ended up being. Where, what, you know, what, what did you kind of, if you look back now, advice to other companies, especially as this fintech startup space is all the rage now, what kind of advice do you give there? You know, um, uh, let the play unfold. And that's what I did. What I mean by that is I look back at HPR and I don't think we ever uh, throttled the company back because we were choking for cash. We were mm-hmm. tight on cash. It actually turned out that it took the market nine years to figure it out. And so we were lucky in that regard because had the market accelerated more quickly, uh, I would have had no choice but to take down rounds and accelerate. But Mm -hmm. it turned out that we just tracked the market in a very measured way and we were able to run it in a very disciplined way, keep money on the balance sheet so that you know, uh, employees weren't spooked that if we had one bad month, you know, we'd be shutting down. But that's unusual. So my advice would be that is a very lucky um, kind of outcome. I would suggest that if you're in a business and you need cash to grow, you have to take the money. Yeah. Um, Let me ask you this then. So let's talk a little bit more about just trends in the industry. And you talk about the FPAG, FPGA space and, you know, companies all of a sudden really have a desire to go fast. You know, high-frequency trading became, you know, a monumentally big, important thing. But everybody just, for whatever reasons, wanted to go faster. Then you had Flash Boys. There was kind of a negative uh, connotation around it. It would seem to me that for a long time there was this kind of race here. I want to be the fast. I want to be the fast. And there was a lot of investment. I don't get that feeling anymore that because everything is so fast now that there isn't that same level of uh, just drive insanity just to really, really push the limits. But maybe I I have it wrong, but it would seem to me that the the discussion around speed and the need to do things quickly has changed at least because technology has made it where being fast is actually just kind of – the, ent- the the level of entry to, to play the game. Is, is that fair enough, or do you think I have it wrong? You are correct, um, and a- although there's still work to be done, I'll explain it this way, for market access gateways, that space, um, I believe you're right. It's found, it's shaken out the new startups that used to come and go. Here's a new HFT firm. We never heard of them. Now they're doing 5% of the market. Those mm-hmm. days are over. Yeah. The, the market has settled out both to the more, you know, accepted market makers, the Virtus or uh, or the Tower Capital Research types. I think there's been a settling of the who will the elite market makers be. And they're usually uh, strong with in-house technology. With HPR, I like to think we've helped the investment banks stay in the facilitation business that they can mm-hmm. allow for market access. But a quiet speed race continues to rage, which is six, seven, eight years has gotten by us. Um, and I'm looking at our client base, not only my current clients, but ones we're acquiring now. And the next layer where there needs to be a major upgrade uh, in technology, smart order router stacks, mm-hmm. which banks compete in that space, sure. very, very important. 
um, smart auto routers, algos, internal matching engines, all of these are key differentiators for those teams. So there is still work to do. Mm -hmm. I would say it this way, the performance loop, I like to call it, the latency loop is comprised of matching engine, data distribution systems that project the trades out, trading gateways that get the trades in, the boxes that do the trading. That might be a box that tower builds to sure. make money trading and or it's a smart order router stack that, that uh, you know, a major uh, top three, let's say, global investment bank is providing to route their customers' order flow through. Whoever wins that race and has the contemporary smart order router stacks, et cetera, they will be relevant. The ones who are falling behind, and I see it, are, you know, I do think we're going to see some consolidation. I think we're going to see some shakeout in that mm -hmm. space in the coming year. So still work to be done, still very competitively. And then I'll, I'll just, you know, I might be sure. jumping ahead of what you want to discuss How right now. You. I think this goes all the way to what does it mean as it relates to large service-oriented architectures you cut like me off. what Amazon. That was going to be my next question, and <laughs> I had a good one all lined up, but go on. Yes, that's no, it. no, that's <laughs> it. That's, I'm going to let you. Well, no, guys. that naturally leads into now the discussion of more capital markets, but every firm really is, are relying more and more on these big infrastructure providers, your AWS, GCP, IBM Cloud, um, Oracle to an extent, and Microsoft Azure, of course. And then you even see, you know, um, uh, NVIDIA, they're kind of now trying to figure out their way and kind of trying to become like an AWS uh, for AI infrastructure. Everybody's yes. trying to carve out their own unique market right now. And because the capital markets on the infrastructure front have traditionally, they're, they're, they've been slower than some other industries, I would, I would imagine, yes. to move on that front. They're now either trying to play catch up or trying to figure out how they fit into this world. Maybe talk a little bit about that trend that you're seeing there. The investment banks and other similar firms are struggling mightily to figure out their technology strategies. It is a very interesting time right now. You'll hear press releases uh, coming from various banks and they're talking about either how they're going to be the next Google or Amazon of mm -hmm. Wall Street or how they're going to start working with Amazon. Sure. Um, my own take on that is this, cloud computing as we know it today, the AWSs, the Googles, um, that's in the future um, and it will be relevant uh, for certain things like data storage and uh, massive compute problems. Sure. You're talking about NVIDIA, they're very good at uh, NVIDIA, they're very good at uh, large scale computes sure. uh, problems. Like for deep learning, stuff like that where you need absolutely massive uh, data sets and stuff like that. That's right. But one prediction I'll make right here, right now, is that uh, um, just like it was with mainframes and mini computers, when they used to build those large computers that took up half the sure. floor of a building, you used to rent connectivity. You didn't have one in-house. You rented connectivity um, and you'd rent minutes on the mainframe. And that turned out to be the right way uh, at the time to go. Um, so that was a form of utility-based computing, much more focused on just having a basic computer relative to what you see now. But nobody ever thought would see these little desktops on 
you know, workstations in people's offices that yeah. would just obliterate that market. <laughs> Nobody saw it coming. I saw a company, Digital Equipment Corporation, number two in the world, go to zero over yeah. missing that reality of the desktop revolution, what was going to happen. I think there's a very similar effect coming in cloud computing where people often confuse technology with how they deliver it. Yeah. And so when you deliver cloud computing, right now it happens to be that just like that big mainframe provider, the companies amassing resources and doing research around it, they can give you a data center where you say, yeah, I need a web farm, da-da-da-da-da. They can provision that and do it for you. And that makes sense. Oh, well, we, we don't have to have a data center and that's sure. expensive, et cetera. But the pendulum will swing back and there will be private clouds. That's a prediction I make. The technology package has nothing to do with the ability to deliver that technology locally. Yeah. And so for the banks, for example, I think they need to be really cognizant of this because if I'm right, um, what it means is no, AWS, they're not going to solve, for example, these latency-centric systems. They have their own set of problems. Yeah. So they need, they do need the efficiencies of cloud infrastructure, but there will be a downsized, I'll call it, um, the desktop yeah. version of cloud computing. That will be coming. I think these banks need to figure out how to do that to make their operations more efficient. Um, a CTO uh, told me of a very prominent um, top-notch um, money management hedge, hedge uh, organization. She said a lot of we CTOs are outsourcing. And we find in the short term, it looks great. We're shutting down data centers, da-da-da-da-da. Sure, sure. Over the long term, we're paying a lot of money for this stuff. Um, moreover, when you think about storage density, terabytes now fit sure. in very small spaces. At some point, an average office with, you know, uh, they need telephones, email, et cetera. Do they really need to rent a pipe from the gas company, if you know what I mean? Yeah, Whether no. it's cloud computing, or will they just have a one-foot cube box yeah. in their closet? Uh, and so the private cloud will come, and I think these banks – and HPR wants to be relevant in helping them to find the technology strategy that navigates them there rather than rolling over on their bellies and waiting for AWS yeah, to say, Google. We'll do it all with you. It's it's that public-private model. Of, it's, it's swinging hard right now to public. It is funny because like eight years ago, oh, I've never used a public cloud provider. Maybe a little bit of stuff here and there. Now everybody's like, Public cloud, love it. We're all we're moving more and more. Not only we're we moving to one, we're moving to AWS and Azure or Google or, or IBM. Um, so you're saying that that's the move right now, but that there will be the technology is going to evolve more and more and become more just available to you know not not the layman, but to to even smaller hedge funds, buy side shops like that. That they will be able to cost effectively create their own private clouds, and for some certain things, you will still use a, an AWS. But that you do see it kind of swinging back to no, we want this to be a little bit more in-house in the future. Absolutely, for these banks, the privacy issues they're dealing with, yeah. the vendor interfacing issues, it's a nightmare. They would rather, I mean, clearly, if there was a, a simplified service that got them the same benefit, the same efficiency. Uh, they would do it, but they're still finding their way. Um, it, to me, it's very Darwinian. Um, the way I've so far in my career been 
lucky or whatever it is at calling future trends. And this is one I feel very, very strongly about that. It's just Darwinian. It just makes too much sense that if it is true that technology will be packaged such that I just roll rows and rows of these generic racks into yeah. a room and then sort of type on a terminal what services I need, at some point, do I really need a provider? And I'd say today, yes, you do, because there's a lot of R&D between where we sit now and providing that. And, you know, but I am I, I feel steadfast, uh, pretty certain uh, that that's going to be a trend. And again, I I love that analogy, desktop versus, you know, tiny desktop all the high-end companies yeah. scoffed at that sure. in the day, right? Digital yeah. sunk the ship to the bottom of the ocean, <laughs> right? Um, I think it's going to be very similar. People are going to be surprised. Okay. And then just uh, really quickly to end up on, uh, you've had a, a number of announcements you put out. We'll link to some of the articles that we've written here on Water Technology about um, some, of, some of your recent releases. But anything that you guys are working on for the future that uh, you want to let uh, any of the listeners know about or still keep it under wraps? Um, what I can tell you is this at a very high level, I think I already alluded to it. Uh, so now I'll say it. And I don't think I've really said this, this succinctly, which Mm -hmm. is that private cloud as it relates to the latency centric aspects of, uh, technology providers in the financial space. This is my second bite of, at that Apple in 2000. And I am a hundred percent committed to building out what would be tantamount to um, a um, private, we'll call it, or let's call it financial services-centric cloud-based infrastructure. Um, Because I've been a follower of the technology, uh, as it has unfolded, I think I understand all the elements of it, et cetera. So uh, we're pretty excited about this and our press. Putting your money where your mouth is on this prediction. So that's even better. Yes, Yes, we are. All right. Well, Tony, this was uh, really enjoyable. Thanks so much, Jeff, for coming on. Yes, thank you, Anthony. I appreciate it.